0: Dear Father, this morning, as we talk about Elijah and Elisha, our real desire is to discover your heart, your mind, your character. So please open our minds just now and help us to see. Amen. Well, we left off last time, you remember, talking about Elijah at the altar. And we spent the whole time talking about what was really going on in the false worship at that time, and how does that apply to us? So we're gonna pick up from there, and just as um, a reminder, and we'll keep coming back to this um, throughout the rest of this month, as long as we're able to meet, and just kind of remind you where we are here. Remember the kingdom split, 931? And we'll go through these different kings. We did last time a little bit in the story of why the kingdom split. And um, so here we are talking about how amazing it is. God sends his prophets to the people who are furthest away and in the most trouble, not to the good ones. All right, so Elijah and Elisha here come to Israel. And we'll talk about this today. And then uh, next time we'll talk about Jonah, who, uh, as amazing as it is, didn't come to either Judah or Israel, but went to the capital of Assyria in Nineveh. But I think it's always important that we keep reorienting ourselves. What are we really looking for? What's the one thing we're looking for as we go through? all these stories. And so here is just a wonderful psalm that I like. And David says, I have asked one thing from the Lord. Okay, what would that one thing be? You have one thing to ask from the Lord. And he goes on, This I will seek, to remain in the Lord's house all the days of my life. Why? In order to gaze at the Lord's beauty. And what would that mean, to gaze at the Lord's beauty? To look at his nose, his mouth. What, what is the beauty? Of God, would it not be the kind of person that God is in character? This is what he's what he's trying to see, and I like here in the Good News version. I have asked the Lord for one thing, one thing only. Do I want to live in the Lord's house all my life to marvel there at His goodness? All right, this is what we're looking for all through the Bible, and so this comes back, and we'll we'll finish up the Bible study on this topic here. But what really is the good news? What is the good news? Is it that? Um, we can be saved or that a penalty was paid or we can make a long list of things here. What is the ultimate good news, would you say? And so let's, let's go through a few verses here in Second Corinthians. For if the gospel, and that is the good news, we preach is hidden, it is hidden only from those who are being lost. They do not believe because their minds have been kept in the dark by the evil God of this world. And aren't we always talking about light and dark, the lightness, the brightness, and the deep darkness. He keeps them from seeing the light shining on them, the light that comes from the good news about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. That is the good news. For it is not ourselves that we preach. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The God who said out of darkness the light shall shine is the same God who made his light shine in our hearts to bring us the knowledge of God's glory shining in the face of Christ. Anytime you see the word glory, and we'll reinforce this here with some other verses, but um, Jesus came to reveal the glory of God and he didn't reveal brightness in a physical sense or great power, okay? What he revealed was the character of God. And so when we we read through here these verses about the glory, we can substitute the word character. So he keeps them from seeing the light shining on them, the light that comes from the good news about the character of Christ. Okay, why is that so important, the character of Christ? Well, he is the exact likeness of God. If we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. So he is the precise representation of the kind of person God is. So the God who said, Out of darkness the light shall shine is the same God who made his light shine in our hearts, to bring us the knowledge of God's character shining in the face of Christ, the ultimate reason for Jesus' coming, right? And just, you know, the Bible is like layers, it seems like. And as you study more and more, uh, the layers just kind of peel off. And something that you've read many times, maybe memorized, um, as you come back to that, it's like, uh, boy, as you understand more, it has greater and greater depth. And so when we ask, what is the good news? And we come back here to John 17. Jesus said, I have finished, or I have shown your glory on earth. Okay, before the cross, he said, I've shown your glory on earth. Talking to the Father, I have finished the work you gave me to do. Okay, what glory did Jesus reveal? What work did the Father give him to do? And it goes on here. I like the way the Message Bible has it. I spelled out your character in detail to the men and women you gave me. Some versions say, I revealed you. I made you known, okay? Intimately, the type of person God is. This is the good news. Okay, in Acts, what was Paul's mission? Jesus' mission was to reveal the character of God. What was Paul's mission? But I don't place any value on my own life. I want to finish the race I'm running. I want to carry out the mission I received from the Lord Jesus. The mission of testifying to the good news of God's kindness, That is the ultimate good news, that the one with all the power is kind, is gracious. And he goes on, I am now entrusting you to God and to his message that tells what? How kind he is. And many versions say how gracious he is. Gracious not being an act of pardoning, but gracious being, this is how God is in character, supremely gracious, supremely kind. And that message of God's kindness can help you grow, and can give you the inheritance that is shared by all of God's holy people. But notice that it is the good news, good news about the kind of person God is, that is the stimulus that works inside of us. All right, more and more texts on this. Here, Paul opens up, Romans 1. The good news was promised long ago by God through his prophets as written by the Holy Scriptures. It is about his Son. Who's the good news about? It's about the Son. Who is the Son? He is God. good news is about God. And he, um, In Mark, Mark opens up. This is the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All right, so again, who is Jesus? And these verses are just uh, spectacular here. Hebrews 1, all these books open up with the same theme. This is the most important thing. And so in the beginning of Hebrews, Jesus reflects the brightness of God's glory. And again, he was not physically bright. So the glory, again, would be the character and is the exact likeness of God's own being. All right? And so when Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, does that mean we have physically seen how the Father looks and the eyes and the nose and all of that? No, he is the exact likeness of the kind of person God is. That is the brightness of God's glory. And in 1 John... We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we know the true God. That's why he came. We live in union with the true God, in union with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God. Jesus is the true God. And this is eternal life. And so probably the most famous of all here in Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the good news, about Christ. For it, this good news, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the good news about God, what is revealed? The righteousness of God is revealed. Righteousness, the goodness, the kindness, the graciousness. This is what the good news reveals. So as we think about, boy, what is the ultimate good news? It's not about you and I. I mean, it's good news we can be saved. But it's only good because when we get there, the one who we'll be face-to-face with is just like Jesus. That's the ultimate good news. And so um, I realize that all of you here are not um, Adventists, but just as perhaps a a historical background for um, perhaps maybe where some of this is coming from, um, this is a quote that I happen to like uh, very much. But it wouldn't matter who wrote it I mean, seriously, if a uh, uh, bum on the street handed this to me on a piece of paper, and I never read it before. It is just, to me, inherently true from reading the Bible. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misrepresented. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. That's the mission, that's the message. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of His glory, His character, the light of His goodness, mercy and truth, the last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is the revelation of His character of love. And wouldn't you all agree, I mean, as a Christian, what is the most important thing? We want to tell about the kind of person our God is. And so, As we come back here, we're talking about Elijah and Elisha. And our search has to be, all the way through the Old Testament, we're searching for the mind of God, the character of God. And so when Jesus talked with these people who knew their Bibles very well, his words to them were, you have your heads in the Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there. But you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. So we should be seeing Jesus in the story of Elijah and Elisha. And here I am standing right before you, and you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. Okay, so with that as as our orientation, and we come back here now to Elijah, and you remember last time we left off, uh, you know, the pagans are running around, uh, well, worshipers of Baal, right? They're worshiping who they feel to be as the true God, gashing themselves, and... um, Fire comes down from heaven and consumes the altar. And you remember this had quite an impact. People bow down. The Lord is God. The Lord alone is God. All right? Now, you would think, what would you think? Now, you don't know the rest of the story. Let's just pretend. Um, What would happen from here? Wouldn't you think there'd be just a great movement, right? I mean, if you saw right here in Loma Linda, fire comes down and... uh, I don't know, some old building or something is consumed that's, you know, I mean, wouldn't you think that there would be just a spectacular thing that would happen right here in Loma Linda, Um, but what happened? I mean, you read on, nothing. I mean, no impact. And so, uh, did it work? It sure didn't seem to. And you remember Elijah then becomes very depressed, discouraged. He runs away from Jezebel and he says, it's too much, Lord, he prayed, take away my life, I might as well be dead. And so he got up, he ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to walk 40 days to Sinai, the holy mountain. Okay, there he went into a cave to spend the night. Suddenly the Lord spoke to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? And he answered, Lord God Almighty, I have always served you, you alone. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed all your prophets. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me, despite the fire just having... Come down. And so God said, Go out and stand before me on top of the mountain, the Lord said to him. Then the Lord passed by and sent a furious wind that split the hills and shattered the rocks. But the Lord was not in the wind. He sent it, but was not in it. The wind stopped blowing, and then there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire there was the soft whisper of a voice. And when Elijah heard it, he covered his face with his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? And he answered, Lord God Almighty, I have always served you, you alone, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars and killed all your prophets. And again, I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And then as the story goes on, Elijah and God have a conversation and God tells Elijah about Elisha and, and so on. But um, what is the point of all this? Why do you think Elijah runs out 40 days to Mount Sinai and um, you know the wind, earthquake and the fire and then finally a soft voice? God's always trying to teach something, right? Like with the story of Job and so on. Uh, what do you think is the teaching point here, have any of you thought about this story? Yeah? Like, right, maybe Elijah wasn't really too clear about God's character and he was more focused on the power, and so God, if nothing, to those other people who didn't believe after the fire was trying to teach Elijah that, look, I can do those things yet, but I want you to know more about them. Right, I love that point. I don't know if the rest of you heard it, but... Um, Elijah was kind of focused on the power, wasn't he? I mean, call fire down from heaven. Show everyone how strong you are. And then so God did this. He, he set fire down. But um, it was kind of, to Elijah, a great disappointment, wasn't it? Well, God, you did what I asked for. You revealed your power. But um, your physical power doesn't seem didn't seem to have much of an impact. And so, yeah, what is the teaching point here for Elijah? And I really like that is... Um, Elijah, I'm gonna now send you a lot of power, okay? Fire, wind, earthquake, but I'm not in those things. And instead, what comes? The still, small voice. And so um, we've used this illustration many times, darkness and light. When we are on a deep, dark cave spiritually and know very little, God cannot just flash us with the brightness of his true glory, his character. And so he uses a dim light and we've used this illustration before, for example, when the people were just horribly misbehaving around Mount Sinai. Totally rebellious. So what does he do? Well, he shakes the mountain and when they don't want to go anywhere near God and they push Moses forward, he gives them an intercessor. All right, is that the purest light about God or is that God meeting with a dim light? And the violence, David and Goliath, the walls of Jericho fall, sending fire to consume the altar. Okay, with Elijah, is this the message God really wants the world to hear, that he's powerful And so I think uh, your point exactly, that wind, earthquake, and fire, yeah, God has used his power. God is powerful, but that's a very dim light, and it doesn't seem to work that well, does it, Uh, at uh, really converting people? And so the message here is, okay, here's a bright light. I would much rather use these methods, the still, small, soft voice of truth. And we just went through the good news. This is the power, right? The good news about the kind of person God is. And so this is the bright light, and uh, ultimately this is the, the real light, the real power that we want to reach the world with, not God is powerful. I think most people agree God is powerful. But uh, again, this, this, that God would come to Mount Sinai where he had before, he shook the mountain, and the people got an intercessor because they were terrified of that God. Now he comes to Mount Sinai, and he sends the wind, earthquake, and fire, but then says... Uh, I think, in essence, these are not the preferred methods. I'd like to talk with you as with a friend, still small voice, soft voice, that's the ideal. And so uh, we get this in the Old Testament. Say, how does God want to talk with us? In Isaiah, and I love all these different versions of this, come now, let us reason together. Okay, it's not God up here, us down here, God dictating to us but um, let's talk this over a little bit. Let's consider your options in the Net Bible, or let's talk this over in the New Jerusalem Bible. Um, you know, We talked about prayer. Talking with God is with a friend, interacting with God. Uh, that's how he wants to relate to us. And in Zechariah, not by strength, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Sovereign Lord. So um, these other methods, that's not the ideal. So what would it be? Uh, if we're going to say, okay, let's do it by the Spirit. And much talk about the Holy Spirit and how that works. But always have to remember, what happens if we're really filled with the Spirit of truth? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, and the opposite of out of control, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It is self-control, all right? And so again, this using our minds, our reason, and God wants to meet us on that level. Okay, what about Jesus? Was he a still, soft, small voice? Well, what were his methods? Did he use wind, earthquake, and fire? He talked with the people, right? He ate with them, he taught them, he told them parables. And when you read through the words of Jesus, um, are they a uh, pulpit pounding, you know, overbearing sermon? Can you shout the words, Blessed are the meek, happy are those who are humble. Take my yoke and put it on you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in spirit and you will find rest. I mean, these are words that are meant to penetrate the mind and to cause the way we change the way that we think and act. All right, so um, I think that's the ultimate message. And uh, wow, right after that, Elijah was translated, right? What an incredible message um, I think it is to us. And so you remember, after Elijah, here we have Elisha and. this is a horrible time. So Elisha here is the designated prophet, and people had uh, were aware that Elijah was resurrected, or I shouldn't say resurrected, was translated. And so um, then, as Elisha went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going on the road, some youths came up from the city and mocked him and said to him, "Go up, you baldhead! Go up, you baldhead!" Which is, I think, as uh, you know, join Elijah. You go up with him. And Apparently Elisha didn't have much hair, so go up, you baldy. All right, so he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Okay, now here he's asking, using God's name and pronouncing a curse on those children. What does God do? All right, well, and two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. And isn't it just like this in the Old Testament? Okay, we read along. Oh, that's wonderful. God speaks softly um, in the cave. And uh, don't we like that? And we love that Jesus is that way. And then we read on. I mean, we're just a few chapters later and bears are mauling 42 um, youths. And so does this just cancel out everything that I just said about God and the still small voice of truth? Yeah, God is this way, wonderful. He's that way. Uh, Okay, let's skip over the bears killing the youths. Um, Well, how do you put this together? Is it now inconsistent with this whole picture we're trying to make of God to say that he would ever uh, use a method like this? What do you do with this story? How do you know God sent bears? Maybe they were Elisha's and bears. Elisha had them caged up somewhere and ready for dispatch. <laughs> well, what do you think? You think God was maybe a little bit uh, tired of waiting around on people to, to see his, his gentle and kind character. <laughs> so, God has a limit, and, uh, you know, He said, I've just had it up to here, and uh, a little anger flashes out. Um, boy, you know, if if God reached a boiling point, I mean, you know, we sometimes have to stop and count to ten and take a few deep breaths and uh, regain our composure. Um, well, you read through the Bible, and um, I mean, I think uh, I'm glad that God doesn't seem to have an end to his patience uh, with us. But I mean, maybe what Marco was getting at here is, boy, Elisha kind of put him on the spot here a little bit, didn't he? I mean, he used the name of, of God, pronounced a curse on the youths, Here's God's prophet, and so what does God do? Well, with all of these stories, just like we talked about Sodom, Gomorrah, and every difficult story, and we're always, I'm, I'm giving you just the worst part of it here. And so we have to build the bigger picture, but Jillian, you had something you wanted to say. I like that. And you know, I, I was going to make the point, actually, back with, Eli, with Elijah, um, what did he do after the fire came down? I mean, he just slaughtered all those priests, right? And uh, what about when Moses went to Pharaoh? Um, he told Pharaoh, uh, initially, uh, we need to go because if you don't let us out of here, God's going to kill all of us. And you go back and you read the words of God to uh, Moses, and you never find anywhere where God told Moses, bring those people out or I'm going to kill all of them. And so we're dealing with human beings, just like you and I, who are um, you know, interacting with God and making lots of mistakes along the way. But, um, but if we just go back here, now we go back to Elijah, but this is the king at this time uh, in the country, King Ahaziah, and this is what happened. He fell off a balcony on the roof of his palace in Samaria and was seriously injured, so he sent some messengers to consult... Baalzebub, the god of the Philistine city of Ekron, in order to find out whether or not he would recover. But an angel of the Lord commanded Elijah to go and meet him. And the messengers of King Ahaziah asked him, why are you going to consult Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, the god of the flies? Is it because you think there is no god in Israel? And so the king, who is supposed to represent God to the people, um, has no interest, no relationship no connection with the true God, and he's worshiping the God of the flies. And so again, as we think about light and darkness, the people in this time, the king, the representative of God, is worshiping the God of the flies. And so what does God do when his people are in a deep, dark cave? And now we have stories like this then about um, these things happening. So I have a slide here, God the risk taker. And um, I want to just try to expand on this point a little bit. What does God want to ultimately tell us? There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out all fear. Okay, now let's read about the two she-bears coming out. But this is what he really wants us to know. And we come to the end of the Bible. Who's left out of heaven? We have this horrible list here traitors, perverts, murderers, the immoral, those who practice magic, those who worship idols, and all liars. What's number one on the list? Cowards. All right, so you must all be very brave to get to heaven. Is that the point here? Or is it not, if we're terrified of God, then that would say we don't know him, right? So um, perfect love casts out all fear. We should not be afraid of God. And so here God is left with this dilemma. His people are in absolute, complete rebellion. Here his king is worshiping the God of the flies. And here Elijah just miraculously went up to heaven, And the people are so unimpressed with all of this that they say to the next prophet, hey, Baldy, you go up too. And you would think at this point, I mean, wouldn't the angels be saying, you know what, God, you have done enough. Just let these people go. I mean, what more can you do? They are complete rebels. But instead, um, you know, again, these people, what if we aren't listening? These people are completely not listening. So does God give up? Well, he resorts to methods and maybe we take the story out in isolation and say, okay, that's the way God is. God sends bears. He, uh, this, these are his methods. These are not his methods. All right? But when the people are completely deaf, uh, I would say God stoops to use a method like this because it is the only way that they will even turn around and listen just a little bit. All right? Let's go through some other examples. Pharaoh. Had uh, Moses come like Jesus, and maybe he washed Pharaoh's feet and uh, said um, just very kindly, you know what, we'd like to go out and, um, and go worship. Uh, would Pharaoh have been impressed with that? Would anything have happened? Um, so again, we have lots of miracles, lots of power demonstration. Is God that way? No, but he spoke a language that Pharaoh could understand. And in Mount Sinai, we just brought up, he shook the mountain because it was the only way. Elisha and the She-Bears, is there any story after this of Elisha being hounded by the people? I mean, boy, they respected Elisha after this story, right? And everyone was probably talking this whole time about Elisha and the she-bearers. bears. right, what about Jesus? I mean, he went into the temple. Now, did he hit anyone as he chased the people out of the temple? All right. the guilty people fled in terror, but read those stories. Who was left in the temple? Children and the sick. Right? So the people who were guilty, uh, they ran away like you know, there was no tomorrow. But the children and the sick, they were completely comfortable around Jesus as he chased the people out. And I have to bring this up here. When Jesus talked with the Pharisees, now I know this may seem like a little bit of a tangent, but our theme here a little bit is God the risk taker. He takes a risk by uh, reaching people using these methods. And the risk is that we come along 2,000 years later And we say, God uses force, fear, coercion. These are legitimate methods um, for reaching the world with the good news about the character of God. But um, he's taking a risk. He's not giving up on these people, but he realizes he may be misunderstood. And so when you read in Luke about Jesus talking with the Pharisees, and this is at the very end of his ministry, and uh, of course, they uh, are thoroughly unimpressed with Jesus. And they're unimpressed because he's hanging out with the people in society that they look down on. And so he tells the Pharisees a series of five parables. The first two, first one is the lost sheep and then the lost coin. And he tells them, you know what, that person over there that you're offended that I'm going out to seek, they're like the lost sheep. And uh, to the Pharisees, this would be pretty palatable, wouldn't it? Because they're assuming, well, we're the 99, right? Right? But um, wouldn't, was, was it, or in the same thing with the lost coin. They think, well, we're the good coin. And, uh, okay, he's going out for the low life of society. But, but wouldn't it mean to stimulate in them, Boy, that is really the right thing. We should be going after the lost sheep and the lost coin. I mean, what a kind way to talk with the people who hate you, right? But they're unimpressed, okay? The, these stories do not move them. So he goes on and he tells the story of the prodigal son. Same theme, right? Here's the son out in the pig pen, and the father is waiting with open arms, and while he was a long way off, he saw him. All right, but now there's a twist because there's an older brother, all right? And so now they cannot help but identify with, they are the older brother, okay? This is a little bit hard to take now because Jesus seems to be uh, now directing things a little bit, not quite in their favor. But again, they're not moved by the story of the prodigal son. And so he tells an incredible story here about the shrewd manager, all right? And this is much more uh, pointed and really hits home about uh, their uh, greed and behavior. And when when he told this story, they couldn't take it anymore. And so when the Pharisees heard all this, they made fun of Jesus because they loved money, all right? And so the, the stories are really turning now towards the reality of their situation. Okay, but he doesn't stop there. Um, And actually, he tells them. He says, The law of Moses and the writings of the prophets were in effect up to the time of John the Baptist. Since then, the good news about the kingdom of God is being told. Good news about the king. Good news about the way the king runs his kingdom is being told by Jesus. And everyone is forcing their way in except for you Pharisees. All right, you're missing out. And so he goes on and he tells an incredible story here of the rich man and Lazarus. And uh, this has been really, I think, a troublesome story um, for many people. But it's helpful here to put it in the context of these five stories that he's telling to the Pharisees. And they get progressively uh, more more uncomfortable for them. All right? And so uh, in the context here, the belief in Jesus' day, and if you read in Josephus, this is described, they believed... The Pharisees that when you die, you go to one of two chambers awaiting the judgment and the good go to Abraham's bosom and the bad are led by the angels to a place of torture that is separated from the good by a chasm where there is communication between. And you'll remember in the story that the rich man is just begging for a drop of water you know, on his tongue. Um, and so this was the belief in the day. Jesus is talking with his people. He loves them. They're his children. He's trying to reach them. And so he tells them a parable that they can fully identify with, all right? But what is the real twist here is, as he's telling the story, he doesn't say anything bad about the rich man, and their assumption, remember, is, if you're rich, you're good. If you're poor, you're bad. If you're rich, you're blessed by God, and based on your riches, that is evidence uh, that God loves you and, and he's blessed you. And so as he's telling the story, all of a sudden there's this incredible twist, and the rich man, you'll remember, ends up in hell. And Lazarus, this poor man, goes to Abraham's bosom. And, I mean, they cannot miss the point, having gone through these five parables now, that they are the rich man. I mean, imagine the shock to find out all your life you've been told you are uh, the most privileged of God, you're God's chosen people. And now here comes this man, this heretic, and he tells you, you know what, you're actually completely on the outs. And these poor people that you're judging, uh, they're actually the ones that are in good with God. And so this would be very hard to take, would it not? And so he concludes with the rich man saying, that's not enough, Father Abraham, but if someone were to rise from death and go to them, then they would turn from their sins. But Abraham said, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone were to rise from death. And remember, a parable is not to make... 20 points of theology. This is not a teaching about hell or anything like that. The point of the parable is here as Jesus concludes, which is to the Pharisees, you know what? Um, even if one were to come from the from the dead, and is it a coincidence that he chose Lazarus, the name Lazarus in this story? This happened after the resurrection of Lazarus. And so, you know what? You just watch Lazarus four days in the tomb being resurrected and it did nothing to you. You're unimpressed. And you know what? Even if someone were to rise from the dead, I'm going to rise from the dead uh, after three days in the tomb, and even that will not convince you. And so this parable very pointedly uh, told the reality, not about hell, but just about their status, their situation, their relationship um, with God. So God, the risk taker, there was a risk in telling this story, but... To those Pharisees, you know, he cared a great deal about them. They're his children, so he told the story. And we don't know, maybe, maybe a number of them were uh, shocked into turning around and seeing the folly of their way by this story. All right, so God takes many risks. But do you like a God who's willing to risk by doing these things? And again, this is why we have to keep our eyes on the character of a God as revealed by Jesus. And every other belief has to branch out from that, ultimately. So God risks his reputation by telling these stories, by doing these things. It is a risk, all right? But that's why he came. It's kind of like, uh, boy, they're just not going to get it any other way. I've got to sh- show up in person and uh, reveal what I'm like. And what about this? Did Jesus, did God take a risk in coming in the flesh? Can God be tempted? No, it says in James, God cannot be tempted. Um, Jesus became a human. Was Jesus tempted? He was tempted, right? In the wilderness of temptation, in Gethsemane, take this cup away from me. I mean, he experienced very real temptation. And I think what an incredible thing that uh, the God of the universe would risk, I mean, really a risk by coming in the flesh. All right, so um, God the risk taker. But here we come back here to these uh, miracles, she bears and uh, miracles. And I'm not going to go through all of these. But there are more miracles, when you think about the miracles of Jesus. But in the Old Testament, the miracles that are condensed in this little part of the Bible with Elisha are incredible. So uh, I just listed some of them. He parted the River Jordan with his coat. He purified uh, some poison water with salt. Um, He called down rain uh, to water thirsty animals and men. Uh, Remember the oil jar that continuously uh, poured oil. And he raised a boy to life after complaining of a headache. This is interesting to me Here's a neurologist. What happened here? He had a headache and then died, but he brought him back to life. Um, remember, he cured uh, poison in a stew by putting some flour in it. Uh, Jesus was not the only one to multiply food. Elisha, 20 loaves of bread, fell, uh, fed 100 men. Remember, Naaman was cured of leprosy. The ax heads are floating. Um, The Syrians were struck blind and led to the king of Syria. I mean, it's miracle after miracle after miracle. But the one I like the best is actually a miracle in his death. Listen to this. Elisha died and was buried. And every year, bands of Moabites used to invade the land of Israel. And one time during a funeral, one of those bands was seen. And the people threw the corpse into Elisha's tomb and ran off. As soon as the body came into contact with Elisha's bones, the man came back to life and stood up. And uh, just imagine what's going on. You're you're in a funeral, and here you're going to bury someone. You turn around, you see the Moabites chasing you, and you throw this person in the tomb. You're running away from the Moabites, and you turn around, and there's the person you just threw in the tomb running after you also. You know? I mean, uh, all of these spectacular miracles. uh, Why do you think there's so many miracles? Isn't this just like the thing with God's power? These people are far, far away. How does he reach them? Boy, we get lots of miracles, lots and lots of miracles to get their attention. But I think an important point here is we tend to associate miracles with trust, right? If I just had more faith, then there would be miracles. But what's what is the point here? How much faith was there in this time? None, and lots and lots of miracles, lots of miracles. And would you say Paul was a man of great faith? Yeah, of course. But to keep me from being puffed up with pride because of the many wonderful things I saw, I was given a painful physical ailment. And he talked about how three times he prayed to God to take this away, a man of great faith, no miracle, okay? Paul was left with this painful physical ailment. So our image of um, more faith, more miracles, that does not seem to be the case Uh, in many instances throughout the Bible. But um, I think miracles here, uh, it's it's important that we think about this because we desire often miracles. We'd love to see more miracles. But the great miracles uh, often just, it's hard to find much success when God uses miracles. And uh, remember here in Numbers, after bringing the people out of Egypt, I mean, again, lots of miracles. The Red Sea, manna, the pillar of cloud, um, so many things. And God said to Moses, how much longer will these people reject me? How much longer will they refuse to trust in me even though I have performed so many miracles among them? Okay, and in Psalms where uh, we have a summary of so many spectacular things that God did, in spite of all this, the people kept sinning, in spite of his miracles, they did not trust in him. And the stories of Elijah, fire from heaven, big deal to the people. Elisha, all these miracles, do we have a record of wonderful things happening because of these miracles? No. What about Jesus? Um raises Lazarus from the tomb, and what do you read on? Just a few verses later, from that day on, the Jewish authorities made plans to kill Jesus. Okay? Forget about that miracle. We don't care. And John concludes with, even though he had performed all these miracles in their presence, they did not believe him. Okay? Why are we so stubborn? in changing the way we think and act when we're faced with evidence like this. Well, what's really scary is when you read about miracles that Satan performs, boy, it seems to win a lot of people. I mean, what's going on here? Listen to this. The wicked one will come with the power of Satan and perform all kinds of false miracles and wonders and use every kind of wicked deceit on those who perish. They will perish because they did not welcome and love the truth so as to be saved. And I think that's the key. Um, really, what do we believe? What is, what is the ultimate truth, the truth that sets us free? If we believe in a certain way, it is almost as if no amount of miracle or signs and wonders will change the way we think and act. Ultimately it is, what do we believe about the truth about God? If we believe him to be one way, it uh, doesn't matter. But if we, if we believe a false picture of God, then the miracles of Satan will reinforce and support that false picture of God. And that seems to be um, the way that the whole world will go after him. And so God sends the power of error to work in them, or could we say God allows this to happen so that they believe what is false? The result is that all who have not believed the truth but have taken pleasure in sin will be condemned. And we read in Revelation um, here that uh, it deceived all the people living on earth by means of the miracles." And when we re- read about the mark of the beast, um, and we read about these miracles, it was by those miracles that he had deceived those who had the mark of the beast and those who had worshiped the image of the beast, all right? And um, even as amazing as it may seem, I mean, when you think about Jesus sending the disciples out to do miracles, okay? Judas was one of those disciples, right? Doing miracles. And so, when the judgment day comes, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, in your name we spoke God's message. By your name, no, did they really? By your name we drove out many demons and performed many miracles. And then I will say to them, I never knew you. All right, so none of this other stuff matters, but do we know God intimately? Do we know him as a friend and forget the miracles? Doesn't matter. And so, uh, maybe just here as a summary briefly, Let's just say there is a spectacular, undeniable miracle, and let's imagine different groups of people and how they respond to that. Um, And don't we sometimes wish, boy, for all of the atheist people, that if there could be a miracle, then they would all believe in God, and wouldn't that be wonderful? But why has someone often become an atheist? Uh, Maybe they've been told, um, God doesn't want you to think, just have faith, and this God will torture for eternity in hell. And that person over time feels this message is ridiculous and rejects God. All right, now this person sees a miracle. And uh, can't you imagine just kind of a sinking feeling? Oh, it's true. And so this person, wouldn't you imagine, would get down on his knees and worship the picture of God which he has been pushing aside this whole time. All right, is that what God wants? People on their knees worshiping uh, a God who is to be afraid of. So is a miracle helpful in this case? Um, yeah, the atheist now is a believer in God, but in, uh, in perhaps a false picture of God. Well what about someone who does believe in a false picture of God, and they see a miracle? Can you think of any times in the Bible when Satan did perform a miracle? And there are a few. The one that came to mind with me was uh, Job. And Job's, I mean, who, who destroyed Job's family, his cattle? And it was lightning from heaven. It was a storm. I mean, it was controlling the elements. And was it God doing that? I mean, God had allowed Satan this kind of access. And for Job's friends, um, boy, you know, that was completely compatible with their picture of God. And so they were seemed to come with delight, almost, that God would use these methods to rebuke Job by killing his cattle and his Family and all of that. So for them, uh, it, this reinforced the way that they thought God was okay. And for Pharaoh, we talked about, and with the Pharisees, they saw all these miracles, but forget it. We're, we're just going to blind ourselves uh, to the miracles. And again, we it is very hard to change the way we think and act. Think about the disciples when Jesus said, "I mean, how many times I'm going to die, and three days later I'll be resurrected," and um, plainly, and Did did it even sink in? I mean, the words just did not seem to penetrate because none of them were talking about it after he died. Oh, you know what? He's going to come to life again. They didn't want to believe it, so they didn't hear it. Uh, It made no difference. So miracles, if they're outside of our current paradigm, um, don't seem to have much impact. All right, so how should a believer, let's say uh, someone who knows intimately the true God, how do we approach miracles? Well, remember, we are involved in a great controversy. And the controversy is not over power, it's over the kind of person God is. It's over his character. We're aware of this. And so miracles merely reinforce what we already know. There is a supernatural, okay? There's a good side and there's a bad side, all right? So these kinds of things uh, just reinforce what we know. And the demonstration of physical might and power, can I even say, is irrelevant, all right? Because it is all about the kind of person God is. It's not that he is powerful. All right, so really any kind of miracle has to be evaluated by ultimately, is it saying the truth about God? Does it reflect the truth about God? And uh, I'm out of time. I wanted to go through a few slides here in Daniel and Revelation, but I think, I think that is the major point, that we are not swayed by miracles and power because that's, that's not uh, what all of this is about anyway. It's all about um, the kind of person God is. All right, let's pray. <coughs> Dear Father, we admire about you that though you are all-powerful and that though you are capable of totally overwhelming us with spectacular miracles, that this isn't what it's all about. And we desire that we will discover your goodness, your kindness, your humility, your great love, and that these would be the things that would really resonate in our mind and that these will be the things that we tell other people. In your name we pray. Amen.